Okay, good evening everyone. Can you hear me? Yes, good. Okay, welcome to the LSE. Uh, uh, on behalf of my department, the Department of International History, um, welcome to tonight's uh, annual golf history lecture. Um, our speaker tonight uh, is probably very well known uh, to all of you. His name is uh, Professor Ervand Abrahamian. Sorry, I'm getting a lot of feedback here. I don't know if that's... Can we fix that? Um, so this is the, I would say, fifth year now of our annual golf history lecture. And uh, uh, we started this uh, quite a few years ago um, in collaboration with the LSE Kuwait program. And the thinking behind it was that, you know, we... Um, uh, when we think about, when we talk about, when we write about the history of the Persian Gulf uh, here at LSE, but more broadly in academia, we don't really talk about history very much. We tend to talk about social science, we tend to talk about political economy, but um, we don't really talk about uh, history. So uh, we wanted to kind of uh, address that. Um, and we've had a whole series of fantastic historians over the year, over the years, and. Uh, Given that this year, 2019, is the uh, 40th anniversary of the Iranian Revolution, we thought, who better than Ervand Abrahamian to come uh, and speak about that very important um, aspect uh, uh, of Persian Gulf history. And when I asked Ervand what title he would like to give for his lecture, he sent me this wonderfully provocative title, the 1979 revolution in Iran, important or not, question mark. Um, so I'm absolutely intrigued to see um, uh, what he has to say. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Roham Alvandi. I'm an associate professor of international history here. I teach uh, the modern history of Iran, and I teach the global history of the Cold War. Um, and... Uh, before I uh, introduce uh, Ervan, let me just once again thank the Kuwait program for their very generous um, financial support um, for this annual lecture. Uh, so it's very difficult to summarize the 50-year career of one of the towering figures of modern Iranian history for you, um, but I'll give it a shot. Uh, uh, Ervan uh, Abrahamian is an emeritus professor uh, of history at Baruch College um, and the Graduate Center in the City University of New York. Um, it's, it's not really an exaggeration to say um, that he is probably the single most influential historian of modern Iran, and at, uh, certainly for scholars of my generation. Um, his books are classics of the field. If any of you have ever taken a course in modern Iranian history or modern Middle Eastern history, I have no doubt that his books have been on your uh, reading list, particularly his 1982 classic, uh, Iran Between Two Revolutions, uh, that was published by Princeton University Press. Um, following that work, he wrote a number of uh, uh, seminal books, um, most of which examine issues of you know, the, the, the sort of class and ethnic roots of radical movements uh, in, in, in modern Iranian history. Um, 
uh, all starting from the Constitutional Revolution in 1905 and all the way through till the era of the contemporary era of the um, Islamic Republic. Um, uh, he wrote a major study of the Iranian Mujahideen, um, a study of populism in Iran under Ayatollah Khomeini, um, and, and most recently he's written a uh, very uh, innovative study of the 1953 coup uh, in Iran. Um, but his contribution to the field really goes beyond just empirical work. It's not simply about sort of filling in gaps. It's, he represents, his work really represents a very important interpretive uh, trend in the historiography of um, uh, modern Iran. He has essentially reinterpreted the methods of Marxist historians, people like um, Christopher Hill or Eric Hobsbawm or E.P. Thompson, uh, for those of us who work on, on modern Iran. Um, and by doing that, he has sort of explored, you know, what is the meaning of class? What's the meaning of contestation? What's the meaning of social change um, um, for his Iran, for, for Iran? Um, I think very importantly, he's not only a historian who is read by us in Europe or by historians in the United States, but he is a historian who is read in Iran itself. His books are bestsellers um, in Iran. They're debated. They're, if you pick up any sort of literary magazine in Iran, you'll often find his picture on the cover or his books being um, discussed and debated. And I think that's also um, uh, a very important part of the legacy um, of his work. And most people know Ervan through his work. I'm lucky. I consider myself very fortunate to, to know him also um, uh, as a colleague. Um, and I think what I found so tremendously surprising about him, given his kind of stature, is really how sort of unfailingly humble and kind and generous he is um, as a scholar. And I think that you will see that um, uh, uh, tonight. So uh, I should say that this event is being recorded. So you've all been warned. <laughs> um, and uh, there is a suggested Twitter hashtag, LSE Iran. Um, so with that, uh, I, I feel tremendously pleased and honored uh, to ask you to please join me in welcoming Ervand Abrahamian to the LSE. Thank you, Ron, for the introduction. Can you hear me? Um, it's I thank you for all for coming. Um, LSE has changed a lot. Um, when I used to visit Fred Halliday a long time ago, uh, LSE seemed much smaller and less grand than it is nowadays. Uh, today I want to basically look at the paradox of the Iranian revolution. On one hand, the revolution is very much uh, comparable to the great classic revolutions. You can put it on that level in terms of study. And this is one reason 40 years from after the revolution we're still studying it and looking at it. On the other hand, unlike the other major revolutions, it didn't have the universal impact. It didn't, it was not exportable. It was, did not create the 
ripples that the French, the Russian, the Chinese, the Cuban revolutions uh, did. So the question is, how does one uh, try to answer this paradox? And I'll try to <coughs> keep my uh, attempt to explain this as uh, limited as possible uh, to leave plenty of questions uh, because anything on modern Iran generates a lot of energy and questions and controversy. Um, now, the word revolution has become a, what Mills would say a sponge word. It has soaked up so many different things that it's become overused. Uh, it's been used for, obviously, revolts, rebellions, uh, civil wars, uprisings, replacement of one dynasty by a rival dynasty, uh, wars of ind national independence, and even for administrative changes uh, done from above, such as the Bismarckian or the Tudor Revolution. The word also has been, I think, misused for radical transformations, such as the Industrial, industrial Revolution or the Scientific Revolution or... <coughs> Uh, even in changes in fashions, whether it's car models or fashion in clothes or headgear. Um, in fact, it's been used, it's become basically what uh, Humpty Dumpty would, would it say, meaning anything I wanted to mean. But to go back to a real uh, definite uh, definition of revolution, the best place to start is uh, from an Australian political philosopher and historian, Eugene uh, Kamenka, in the 1960s. In a very perceptive article, he argued that revolution is a, a sudden, drastic shift of power from one uh, strata to a distinctly different strata. And this shift is also expressed in a change in the regime, for instance, uh, from the political system, a change in ideology and legitimacy. And this shift of transfer of power is basically accompanied um, by a considerable amount of violence, but also mass participation. So if you have this more of a clear definition of revolution, you find most of the things we call revolutions are not really revolutions, or at least they're failed revolutions, or even national liberation movements, but they don't result in a drastic shift of power with leading to all these social, political, ideological changes. Uh, using that definition, and of course, um, Kamenka mentions that before the French Revolution, of course, the word revolution meant in the medieval world cyclic turning round, going like the celestial turning round, but this word drastically changed its meaning with the French Revolution as producing something new. So you're not ending where you started, 
but you have uh, after the revolution you have got to a completely different situation, different uh, political system and ideological system and um, uh, uh, social system. Um, if you use this definition then, what you find is the Iranian revolution does clearly fit into that uh, in terms of obviously uh, sudden, rapid, it's there. Uh, before 77, 76, most uh, uh, students and experts on Iran considered the regime as stable. Uh, even the CIA on the height of the revolution thought this was a regime that would last uh, throughout the Shah's uh, uh, lifetime. But yet the revolution came very suddenly and drastically. Uh, it, basically, the revolutionary protests, uh, usually textbooks say, started in January 1977 with the uh, demonstrations, uh, January 78, with uh, seminary demonstrations in Rome. I would say they started actually in October, November of 77 with student demonstrations in Tehran. But whether it's 13 or 15 months, it is barely a short time that the, what seems like a stable, bulwarked uh, uh, dam collapses very quickly. Um, another uh, aspect of it, of course, is that this is a revolution of mass participation. Uh, uh, American political scientist Kurzman, who's done a new book on Iran, their revolution, he argues that there was most par more mass participation in the Iranian revolution than any other revolutions, including Russian, French, and so on. And of course, the revolution itself drastically changed the, uh, the, the whole political social system. Here you have this possession of an elite that was grounded on the old aristocracy and the court and the military. This was all swept aside, and a new elite came in, which was basically located in the bazaars, I would say the petty bourgeoisie and the clergy. So it wasn't just Humpty Dumpty exchanging seats. It was a dramatic, drastic shift of people who were now leading in power. And of course, this shift radically changed the political system uh, from a monarchy to a republic. It changed the, uh, the official ideology from more or less the divine right of kings to, a, a uh, to an ideology distressed the importance of Islam. And also a uh, question of what was the social order was dramatically official view of the official official uh, order. Um, and also, of course, this uh, revolution um, brought about uh, uh, demographic shifts. Uh, almost more than a million people had to leave the country on because they were on the losing side. And this is often a way of seeing that this was a great deal of, you can say, social convulsion. Um, another aspect 
of the revolution, of course, is besides mass participation, a considerable amount of violence, although the violence is often exaggerated. Uh, the official view, like a, a figure given for number of deaths or martyrs during the revolution was put at 60,000. Uh, the true figure actually is 600. Uh, during the um, um, Bazargan uh, period, uh, a book of martyrs was published by the government, which is a hefty book with trying to give all, as much information of all the people who were killed during these uh, uh, 15 months of protests. Uh, if you actually get hold of the book, it's now very hard to get for obvious reasons, but if you get hold of the book and look through it, uh, the most you can come up with the number of people uh, who were killed in the de demonstrations uh, were 600. So there was violence, but not on that set of, you know, of, uh, 60,000 willing to be martyred. So in, this, in many of these ways, it actually fits into the classic models of revolution. Um, and if you look back at uh, the, how usually the metaphors that are used to describe revolutions, for instance, uh, you have uh, uh, Saint-Just saying the revolution is a volcanic explosion, something erupting with a great deal of suddenness and violence and changing the whole arena. One of his fellow Jacobins called it a lava that comes in and sweeps everything that is there. Uh, you have also uh, people such as Burke saying that, uh, who was no friend of the French Revolution, saying this revolution basically changed the world from that moment on, uh, on its impact. Uh, Carlyle, uh, writing on the French Revolution, said, described it as uh, something, uh, a modern phenomena that hopefully will occur once in a millennium. So very rare. So he was, I would say, exaggerating. But if you then look at it, actually, how many revolutions there have been, it's not that many. But of those many, I can one can with confidence say Iran fits into uh, one of those uh, few. And if you look at most of the metaphors used for revolution, which uh, always stick into one mind, besides Joust uh, and uh, Carlyle, there are um, what is often stressed is the drama, the, the force, but basically the something that is very dramatic and sudden that has impact. Uh, Saturn going, Saturn devouring his children is something that sticks in your mind. It's not something that happens uh, on normal occasions, and. Um, there, uh, it, 
there are plenty of other metaphors you could bring in that shows the drama. Uh, Mao Zedong has a very vivid uh, metaphor, which I can't use in public uh, audience, but he also gets to what is very dramatic about it. I, I would, if I was using a metaphor in a modern day, I would say a revolution is like uh, two uh, uh, superstars colliding. So it's releasing a lot of energy, both destructive and, const and constructive, and re causing a lot of damage. It's very interesting and hypnotizing, and it's always best to uh, observe it from a distance rather than close by. Um, so the Iranian Revolution very much fits into this uh, model of, I would say, the classic great revolutions. Yet, um, despite it does, it does so, and it's also worth uh, in investigating for scholars, um, it had very little impact or uh, influence outside its own country. Um, the changes that we often talk about are not really because of the ideas of the Iranian Revolution, but the change in balance of power in the Persian Gulf. Um, until the Iranian Revolution, the U.S. very much depended on the Shah as the power in the region, uh, as basically the gendarme of the region. And with that destruction, at disappearance of that, there was obviously a shift of balance of power, international complications in the region, and when people say, well, the impact of the Iranian Revolution, they're talking about basically the change in the balance of power. But when you look at in terms of whether the ideas of the Iranian Revolution had much influence outside Iran, we're actually left with very little. Um, even when the Arab uprisings occurred, not long after, two decades later, there was little influence of the Iranian Revolution there. Uh, in fact, most of the Arab readers in their revolts tended to wanted to distance themselves from the Iranian Revolution. This is in some ways surprising because the Iranian Revolution was probably the very first revolution ever televised. Uh, so people saw it uh, at real time uh, throughout the world because it was so well covered uh, in the media and the television in 1977, 78, 79. Yet despite all that, um, it didn't resonate in the same way the French, the Russian, the Chinese, the Cuban revolutions did. So how does one account for that? Well, I think the reason for it is if you actually look at the demonstrations, the slogans used during the revolution, and these have been actually studied well, uh, there are some 1,800 slogans that have been basically uh, preserved uh, in on records of what were the street demonstrations uh, and what people were crying for and talking about. 
Uh, if you look at those demonstrations, almost all of them are really very much grounded on Iranian discontent. It's that their protests about getting rid of the Shah, getting uh, 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 making a mockery of the royal family, uh, opposing uh, America or Britain or Russia for supporting the regime. Um, so they were very much localized um, uh, slogans, demands. Uh, similarly, uh, if you well, the main slogan was, of course. Uh, it's a term that uh, Shariati had developed. Make uh, every day Ashura, make every month Moharram, and every place Karbala. A slogan that had a great deal of potency, especially during the holy month of Moharram. Um, this was very much, you can say, a, a Shi culture, out of uh, something that resonates very much in a Xi culture. Um, another big slogan was, of course, um, independence, freedom, uh, Islamic Republic. Again, when they're talking about independence, freedom is basically obviously referring to Iran trying to get independence from uh, the major powers. Uh, freedom is freedom from uh, Western control. And Islamic Republic is basically for uh, Iran. So here you have, basically, you can say the uh, the culture of the revolution was very much based on Iranian uh, uh, culture itself. And here, um, the word discourse is important. Uh, again, like revolution, the word discourse has been misused or overused. But if you use it the way Foucault originally used it, as basically the language, the symbols, uh, the vocabulary of a particular culture, and you do an archaeology of, uh, of uh, discourse, as he did, you'll find that basically as layers of culture, certain discourse of a certain period are very different from geologically from a, another layer and it, each discourse has its own meanings, it has its own logic, sometimes it's implicit meanings that are not spread out, and the, also the boundaries of the discourse. So the revolution itself was very much the discourse of um, Shiism and Iranianism. Uh, it was not a universalistic discourse like the French or Russian or the Chinese revolutions that is appealing to all men uh, everywhere, anywhere as, as the rights, human rights or declaration of the rights of man. Uh, so the discourse here you find both in the culture and elite, even in the revolutionary elite, is very much grounded in its own uh, basically locality. Uh, so it's not only in the slogans, but also if you look at the intellectual field in Iran uh, in the 70s, before the revolution, you find that uh, many of the writers, political activists, basically were adopting 
uh, what others have called, uh, especially Bezard Rujerdi is called a nativist uh, discourse. And uh, also a colleague of mine, Ali Mirsepasi, has done a work on what language the course uh, people were do using in the 70s. What you find surprisingly is all of them, whether they are monarchists or that they are um, uh, moderate uh, Muslimist, whether they're Mojahedin, or whether they are basically critics of the regime, everyone, with the exception of the uh, of secular leftists, all of them basically adopted the cult, the discourse of nativism, uh, arguing that basically we should return to roots. Uh, some for them the roots was Iranian roots. Some for some it was the Shia roots. Some for it was root of mysticism. So what you get in common with very different people, such as, let's say, Shariati, Narari, a sociologist, secular uh, monarchist, or, uh, or Sufi, court Sufis, uh, Hossein Nasr, very different people politically, but what all they have in common is actually a rejection of the West, which really for them was the ideas of the Enlightenment, and, uh, and grasping at uh, a return to roots. And of course, the idea of Garbzadegi, rejection of the West, return to roots, was very appealing. Uh, it was sort of, you can say, emotionally appealing. But under that, the rejection was actually a very important and I would say a dangerous uh, venture which was a rejection of the international concept of human, right, human rights and the rights of equality and uh, li liberty and equality. Ideas that you find in the other universalistic revolutions and they were universalistic because they were using the discourse of rights of man, while in this case, it was actually rejection of this discourse and return to roots. Uh, again, this was, I would say, in the short term, very successful and good, good in terms of success. It could grab people, it could appeal to people especially within the country, but it was not really something that was exportable. Uh, in fact, there was other dangers involved. If you're basing your ph philosophy, political ideology on return to roots, then other people can return to their roots too. And you could have then feasibly predict the rise of something like the, the so-called caliphate. Uh, if Shi'is are returning their roots, why can't she, Sunnis return their roots? And they might find their roots somewhat different from the Shi'i explanation of their uh, finding of their roots. So here what you get is a revolution that is very different from the other great revolutions. It's very much basically uh, inward-looking, uh, 
basically use it not because it wants to be inward looking. Some of the leaders of the revolution, in fact, thought themselves as universalistic, but they had a message to the world. Uh, you find, you can find quotes for uh, Khomeini talking about the most asafin of the world should unite and so on. But these were, I, was, I think, deceptive. He was using this type of populism to appeal to the Iranian population. And the fact that his whole discourse was very Shi, it was really by itself grounded into or limited to Iran, or at most to the Shi world, not outside. It, it really, even if it thought it had a message to the world, the language it used, the symbols it used, uh, the slogans it used, really did not resonate outside uh, its own community. Now, there were people inside the revolution who did or thought they could export the revolution and that they did have a message to the rest of the world. Uh, but wittingly or unwittingly, their discourse actually limited themselves. Uh, it was hard to appeal to Sunnis on the grounds of Muharram, Karbala, and Ashura. In fact, it might even turn people off outside the Shi'i world. So in a way, you can say the discourse limited its, uh, its whole appeal of the revolution. Now, it's interesting if you look at the fate of uh, some people who really did try to export the revolution. Uh, they were easily marginalized. Some were executed or co-opted into the regime by 1983, 84. Um, there are actually two, uh, two recent uh, dissertations uh, in the United States on, on the uh, attempts on the or at least on the uh, on the revolutions trying to export itself, and they failed. Well, they eventually failed because they were cracked down upon by the realists, or you could say the pragmatic leaders of the revolution, people like Rafsanjani Khamenei, who were more interested in preserving the re republic rather than getting involved in outside uh, export. Uh, so people like the Montazeri father and son, who, uh, who were main advocates of export, and there was a colleague of theirs, Hashemi, who really took seriously the idea that they should export the revolution. They all failed, in part because of politics, internal politics, but mainly, I would say, because their discourse really did, did not uh, extend outside uh, the Shi community. And where uh, you look at uh, outside Iran, where there Iran does have support, it's not because the ideas of the revolution have that appeal there or they've drawn people into it. It's much more actually compl more co complicated. Nowadays, people talk about, especially in America, about Iran having basically exporting its revolution, trying to take over, the, uh, if not just the Shiite crescent, but the whole of the Middle East. 
But if you look at where Iran does have influence, it's not because the ideas of the revolution have spread there, it's because, because local communities in those countries um, are besieged or threat, threatened, and they look at the Iranian state as a potential protector or supporter against the major, basically, uh, threat locally. So, for instance, the Hezb Hezbollah in Lebanon was really created after the Israeli invasion, and the Shia population in Iraq, in, in Lebanon, needed protection. So, natural place to look for protection was, in fact, in Iran. If you look, go back even further earlier, uh, before Hezbollah was created, before the Islamic Republic was created, there, there was Amal in uh, Lebanon. And Amal actually had quite close ties with the Shah's regime. So it was here, there was basically, again, a small minority looking for another support from outside. Uh, so the, if, I would say the idea of Iran as a protector of the Shi'is in Lebanon predates the Islamic Revolution. Of course, after the revolution, you have Hezbollah, which then basically makes that link more visible. Similarly, if you look at Syria, well, there's, there's no way you can say the Iranian Revolution appealed to the Assad government, that's a secular, so supposedly socialist government. Assad really became very close to Iran because it was basically felt threatened by the Sunni population and outside powers in Lebanon. Uh, once you have a slogan in Syria saying uh, uh, Christians to Lebanon and Alavis to the grave, obviously Alavis have no choice but to look for outside protector and outside the protector lo and behold becomes Iran and Russia. Uh, nothing really to do with the appeal of the Iranian revolution. Similarly, with the Houthis in, um, in uh, uh, Yemen, and all along, wherever you find there is, a, you could say, influence of Iran, it's out of these basically uh, besieged uh, minorities often who search for protectors, and Iran becomes a protector. But the ideas of the Iranian Revolution really have not been re resonating elsewhere. And it's very, it makes this Iranian Revolution much more, I would say, re remains an Iranian Revolution rather than an international one. We could say that Lawrence parallel to the great uh, classic uh, major revolutions of the world history. I'll stop there. Okay, we. I don't know. We have plenty of time uh, for questions. Um, can I ask you just to um, identify yourself? And can I remind you that a question ends with a question mark? It's not an invitation to give a lecture. Okay. So who would like to ask the first question? Yes, please, Ronald. 
Uh, I am Ramin from UCL. Uh, you, you focused on the exporting side on your talk, Iran. Uh, how about the importing side, you know, the global context? In the 80s, we got the new liberal turn, and the seeds of that were pretty much laid in the 70s. In the 70s, you had the decline of Keynesianism, gradual decline of revolutionary leftism. So basically, it takes two to tango. You know, the importing side, the global context, may not be very receptive towards these ideas in the 80s. The revolution of Iran was pretty, it looked pretty much like, you know, the ideas of 70s and the 60s. Collect a few questions. The lady there. Hello, uh, my name is Hande. I'm studying EU politics here. I'm Dutch Turkish. I don't know why that matters, but yeah. I have two questions. Um, one is more about elaboration, if you could elaborate a bit more. When you said um, the discourse of nativism, you said uh, most, let's say, some said returning to Shiism, uh, the others uh, Iranianism, and except for the secular left, what's the difference between um, the, those who said returning to uh, Iranianism, I think that's the term that you used, and those of the secular left? So can you be, let's say, um, both secular left and Iranian. So what, what, what is it that, they, that separated the two? And the other one is, let's say, um, so the, the discourse was non-exportable. In hindsight, if uh, the protesters would look back and, uh, let's say, reflect on the slogans and the discourse that they chose, do you think that it mattered that the discourse was not exportable? Does it matter that it wasn't? Uh, no, I'm just basically looking at why it wasn't. I'm not giving a value judgment on it. Uh, in fact, I try to resist a value judgment on revolutions. <laughs> it's, I would like to quote Trotsky and E.H. Carr, both agreed that we leave the value judgments to the moral philosophers. <laughs> revolutions happen, and it's interesting to find out what happens and what are the consequences. But once you get into the morality of it, that's a different realm. Obviously, some people win out, some people lose. Uh, in the interest, it's the question about if you the discourse. If you're looking at um, Iranian, Iranianism or or uh, Shiism. Sure, the Shah's idea of rejection of the Enlightenment, rejection of uh, uh, international co concepts. His was, so you find a true source of Iranianism in ancient Iran, whatever that means, okay? So it's a, sort of, again, very mystical, but again, the idea is somewhere back in Iranian uh, history it was true Iran. And it wasn't just him, actually. You have a number of intellectuals. There is some... Uh, uh, an Iranian Heidegger called Fadid, who was a big name and had very great deal of influence, mainly because no one could understand what he was saying. It's always, <laughs> if you're a philosopher, it's always useful to use language. No one, but again, his gist was somehow: uh, West is terrible, 
liberalism is terrible, human rights are terrible, uh, true Iranian identity is somewhere in the mists of ancient Iran. Uh, so uh, he also had a great deal of impact, I think, on intellectuals. For secular leftists, they were not really to this discourse. They were, I would say, still very much in the Enlightenment discourse that if you wanted to uh, have a real healthy society, you have to start with the basis that uh, human beings are born with natural rights. Uh, I, going back to the uh, French Revolution, the Enlightenment. And this is, I think, why the others objected to this. The core of the objection of the Enlightenment, and there's a lot of tr trouble with the Enlightenment, of obviously some Enlightenment figures were uh, social Darwinians, racists, and so on. But the core of the Enlightenment, that human beings are born with natural rights, uh, goes to the heart of the issue because the, the, the Shah's regime rejected that because then you basically then have to accept people's rights. The, uh, the ulama also, the, the Islamicist rejected that because if you start your political discourse on that, then uh, you're rejecting the notion that rights, you, the human beings don't have rights, they have obligations to God. And that's a very different discourse because if it's obligations and rights given by God, then who then actually judges what those rights and obligations are? It's by definition the clergy, they know who they are. Uh, people like Shariati try to subvert that and say, well, I know Islam, I, a new clergy have misinterpreted Islam. But that doesn't really take you far because someone who studied 20 years in a seminary obviously knows his hadiths and his religion much better than uh, someone who spent some time in the Sorbonne and comes up with his ideas, his own ideas of what Islam is about. So you do actually get what, what you, in the 70s, before the revolution, a very interesting uh, debate about intellectuals, which they sound like abstract debates, but when it comes to the revolution, they have this basically uh, margins of the discourse who, who it could appeal to. Uh, The other question you mentioned about uh, that the revolution was sort of, in a way, uh, looking back. But actually, I seem to remember when the revolution did occur, the surprise for most academics was how could you have a revolution that's uh, religious in the 20th century? So in many ways it was not seen as something that was current at the time. Uh, the novelty was that it was somehow uh, un un uh, unexpected because it was using a religious discourse. And they, the argument was you can't have a revolution that uses a discourse. And that's like actually a, a false history. The, the English Revolution, I didn't talk about, that's a true revolution, but that used the discourse of Protestantism. 
So there's no reason a revolution has to use either a liberal discourse or a Marxist discourse. It can just as well use a religious discourse as long as it, as it accomplishes the things that Kamenko would say is a revolution. Yes, Daniel. Hi, I'm Daniel, a former student here, student of Dr. Alvandi. It's great to be back. Um, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on whether the revolution had an impact on ending the Cold War. I'm thinking sort of like re-establishing Islamism as a third force between West and East, despite the differences between Shia Islamism and Sunni Islamism, uh, maybe the Afghan Mujahideens, for example. Thank you. Hi, uh, Adrian, I'm a former student here. Uh, two questions, a, a backward-looking and a forward one. The backward-looking one, um, I think you alluded to the fact that uh, a lot of the great powers completely uh, underestimated the magnitude of what was happening before the actual revolution. How could that happen? That's the first question. And just today, if you speak to um, the Iranian youth, those guys and girls in their 20s and 30s, is the revolution just a historical event, or is it something that still actively shapes their thinking, the way they look at the world? Yes. Yes, I, actually, I, I know that, uh, in the sort of uh, definitions of revolution, uh, historians usually say revolution is a, a break in time. It's like a guillotine break. People talk about before and after. And in Iran, definitely, whatever side you're on, uh, 79 is a break in historical break in time. Uh, for younger people, you mentioned, that break is actually led to a sort of nostalgia <laughs> for what there was before 79, and uh, both in inside outside. So people forget how unpopular the, the regime was. What they remember is uh, things uh, of good things about the old regime as if that was basically very prevalent. And it, it, it's, it's no accident. I mean, it's partly, I think, natural. Uh, there's a Russian historian who says the 20th century started with uh, utopia, it ended with nostalgia. It's, it seems to be a universal phenomenon of looking back with nostalgia for the past. Uh, there's very clearly that in, in Iranian thinking now. Um, whether it was backward looking, I don't, I, I'm not sure what that means because the idea here was because it's religion, it's traditional, it's backward looking. If it's secular, it's modern, forward looking. That dichotomy I don't think really bears out. It's, I know it's a political scientist used the term because of <laughs> the notion of modernization. Uh, but I, it's, again, it's a sponge word. Um, I'm not sure why a, a revolution that is religious has to be backward looking. Um, in fact, they, they were creating something new and Rafsanjani, in fact, admitted at one time, he said, everything we're doing is something new. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you don't have in the past uh, uh, elected 
presidents, we don't have republics in Islam. So in a way, using the Islamic um, language didn't mean they were actually looking back or something in the past in terms of uh, replicating. How did it happen? Uh, well, why did it happen? Again, that's a, many reasons for it, but I, I would say the regime collapsed because it lacked legitimacy. Uh, so uh, any regime to survive has to have some basis of legitimacy. And what you find uh, here in Iranian revolution, the short-term causes were very minor. Uh, you know, a little dip in oil income, a little pressure about human rights. Uh, most regimes could sustain that. Uh, why this regime basically unraveled is uh, once you had a slight opening up, uh, the whole question of legitimacy came in. Uh, much of the opposition, uh, and I would say the public, politically active public, didn't consider the regime as legitimate. And the Shah tried to gain legitimacy by talking about 2,500-year history, but people often thought about the other fault line in Iranian history, which was 1953. Uh, so that basically was, I would say, the Achilles heel of the regime that looked so uh, so uh, strong, uh, really it came down like a house of cards in 15, 17 months. Oh, end of the Cold War. Uh, did it end the Cold War? No. <laughs> the, the, I think the, the Soviet Union had its own problems, uh, nothing to do with Iran. Um, and it, would, it, it was a bit presumptuous of Khomeini writing letters to Gorbachev to tell him what to do. Uh, Gorbachev, I knew that the problems that existed in, in, uh, in the Soviet Union really had nothing to do with Iran. And here, actually, it's an interesting question. When I was studying uh, Soviet history, in this, this was at Columbia in the 60s, the whole notion was that the Achilles heel of the Soviet Union is the Muslim world. That this is will bring down the, the Soviet Union because naturally Muslims had no reason to support the Soviet system. But if you look at, at the unraveling of the Soviet Union, the, the one areas that really not, there was no change. <laughs> the, the local basically commissars, lead, uh, Soviet leaders, suddenly basically became the Republican leaders of the, the new states. There was no basically transfer of power in those states. The, I would say the most stable republics in the Soviet Union tended to be the Islamic republics. So there was, the, I, there was clearly a fear in Kremlin that the ideas of the Khomeinism would spread there, uh, but they didn't. Yes, at the far back there. Thank you, Professor Abrahamian, for your talk. My name is Saleh. I'm a student at LSE. Uh, I have a question. You describe besieged minorities in the Middle East that look to Iran for help. Would you say that the Alawites in Syria is a besieged minority that looked for, to Iran for help? 
or is that confusing a religious minority with a secular regime? Thank you. Uh, good evening. Uh, my name is Martin. I'm a student at LSE. Um, you seem to contrast the concept of exporting the revolution with the strategic relationships of Iran and countries and groups in the region, or regimes and groups in the region. Don't you think that perhaps um, exporting the revolution, or one mode of exporting the, re the revolution, could be through exporting and supporting Shiism and Shia groups abroad? Thanks. Um, yes, okay. Um, I'd have this. Uh, again, here's sort of semantic issue. Are the Alavis basically a religious minority or an ethnic community? Uh, either way, I mean, if, let's say avoid the religious minority, but uh, uh, ethnic minority that is, in fact, uh, would, if I was an Alavi, I would feel threatened by Salafis. Uh, but because the Salafis, jihadists, have made it clear that they don't, uh, they're out to get the Alavis. So there is no basically uh, choice with the, for them uh, but to support the Abatis regime. And the Abatis regime needs, uh, basically, needs to support, get the support of Russia or Iran. So it's, I, I would say it's much more on a pragmatic uh, uh, survival uh, basis rather than anything to do with uh, religion or even uh, uh, ideas, ideology. Um, now, is Iran interested in exporting Shiism? You would find some, obviously, uh, especially theologians in Rome, that they think that this is something that uh, could be spread. Uh, and there's often talk, uh, people were saying, you know, uh, Shi'is are trying to get converts, let's say in places like Morocco or Egypt. But when you look at it more closely, it's basically, you can say, it's so small an issue. There's, there's very little, basically, appeal. And this part of, uh, uh, evangelical activity is really, uh, I would say, of no, of no importance. And the, I don't think the state encourages. You might get a few uh, Rome uh, theologians who are thinking about that. Uh, and uh, again, uh, it's the language, again, it's, it doesn't really resonate in a Sunni population. Another thing, I, I mean, I didn't get into, the Islamic Revolution itself was, I would say, very much based on uh, Shi discourse. But when you move forward to 1981, 82, 83, you have an added layer that makes it more confining, and which is the concept of Velayat al-Fari. So by, by the time the Constitution is written, it's not enough to support the Islamic Republic you have to support the velayat fari as the central notion. If you don't commit yourself to the principles of velayat fari, 
you are not act you're not able to be active in uh, the political scene you can't even stand for uh, the match less if you don't actually submit to the notion of Eliot of Vary. So, um, you know, outside the clergy, the whole notion of Eliot of Vary, the way Khomeini used it, was basically very restricted. It was not something that existed in Shiism. For Shi theologians, Eliot of Vary meant something different. But once you get outside the Shi community, what, the, the whole mean that the, the term would have absolutely me meaningless. You might as well talk uh, double Dutch, the Laetifari. Uh, In English, you would translate it as guardianship of the jurist or something like that. Yeah. But of course, it means the jury, the she jurist. Uh, so even in Lebanon, uh, does it make sense to say that the Lebanese state should be under the guardian of the jurist? After all, the, the Shi'is might be the largest population, but they're not the majority. Uh, and then once you get into the Christian populations, is it going to have any appeal? How many Christians are going to be attracted <coughs> to the notion of Velayat uh, al-Fari, not to mention the Sunnis? Yes, this lady right here. Just wait for the microphone, please. Uh, I'm Shirin, I'm studying fine art, and uh, my question is like, uh, why it's important to questioning the importance of 1979 revolution in the current political situation in Iran? So why is it important to question the importance of the Iranian revolution in, oh. the current, in the context of the current political situation in Iran? Another question? Yes. Up there in the balcony. Thank you. I'm also one of the many former students who've clearly flocked here in droves um, to see both you, and Professor Abrahamian, but also um, Dr. Alvandi. So anyway, I'll get to my question. To what extent um, is the lack of military victory in the war after the revolution to blame for the lack of impact of the Iranian revolution? Uh, yes, actually, I mean, that relates to the whole topic. When uh, the Iran-Iraqi revolution, you were talking about the Iran-Iraq revolution. Yeah. I mean, when Iran crossed the border into Iraq and pursued the war, the expectation was that the Shia population in Iraq would rise up against the Ba'athists in support of Iran. It didn't. Um, so instead, you had to basically the prolongation of the war for, for seven, eight years, because that uprising never occurred. Um, the, the, the Shia uprising occurred thanks to US invasion, not the Iranian invasion. Um, so here again, it shows the limitations of the appeal. Uh, in, uh, we're now discovering, actually, that that war uh, led to a debate internally, because they, the, the, the Iranian revolutionaries who were, you could say, the 
advocates of export, uh, like Montazeri, uh, they argued that the war should stop and Iran should uh, resort to basically instigating a revolution among the Shi'is in Iraq instead of continuing the war. And this became really a sort of a bloody dispute and led to Hashemi's execution because they were actually criticizing the military war and advocating that what they should be doing is like a Trotskyist export of the revolution into Iraq. So I think the war itself obviously uh, uh, failed in uh, export, but uh, outside the country, I don't know if it had much, in fact, either way, whether in other Arab states it had much, uh, basically, influence either way, because after all, Saddam Hussein wasn't that popular among the Arab populations elsewhere, so it wouldn't have much appeal. Um, Now, the important is the is questioning the Iranian revolution in Iran. Is that important? Uh, depends. I mean, it, it, the regime bases itself, and it, I would say its legitimacy is the Iranian revolution. Uh, the question is uh, uh, how you uh, question it. Uh, I mean, the the monarchist questioning is somewhat bizarre, but uh, it often has some track because there are monarchists where you're saying it's not wasn't the revolution, it was the Americans and the British decided the Shah was no longer any good for them, so they brought Khomeini to power. So it, it was basically a, a transfer of power by the dictates of someone in Washington or in London pressed a button and the Shah had to go and Khomeini came in. So it, that's the way it's often delegitimized. Uh, it, it, uh, it, has, it has some traction, I think, because there is in Iranian uh, popular, I mean, even elite culture, the notion that everything is done from abroad one could call it a paranoid style of politics, uh, that nothing really in Iran happens on local grounds. It's always someone from outside pulling the strings. So if you start with that discourse, you can say, then it, this whole argument fits in. Yeah, sure. You know, the Shah had to go because uh, uh, Carter decided it, he was no longer good. So that, in a way, can, is, is a potent way of delegitimizing the regime. But the main way, I think, uh, the savvy media, uh, Manuto, I would call it a very savvy filmmaking, probably financed very generously by the Saudis, is to build a nostalgia for how good things were before 79. Uh, and if you look at their their documentaries, actually on television, on on internet, uh, they're very cleverly done. Um, uh, and the gist of it is basically, uh, before '79, it was a fault line. Before '79, everyone was happy, well-fed, uh, employed, loved the Shah, 
the traffic was good in Tehran. And after 79, everything is reversed. Right. Yes, please. This gentleman in front here. Um, uh, my name is um, Frank Kelly. Uh, I write on um, cultural issues. Um, one important issue um, for a long time for uh, Arabs and uh, Muslims in general was the cause of Palestine. Now, uh, Iran proclaimed something called Al-Quds Day um, in um, Jerusalem, free in Jerusalem, all that. Um, in reality, it doesn't have to, it doesn't seem to have much impact. Um, why not? Why, why is it that it has not extended the influence of Iran across the Arab and Muslim world? Gentleman in the white shirt there. Yes, um, thank you for that interesting um, discussion and analysis. My issue is, uh, you mentioned earlier the question of discourse. Um, this is related to earlier questions regarding in the inward-looking aspect of the revolution in terms of Iran itself, or Iran only, and Shia Islam, which was not for export, thereby reducing the impact of that revolution. And in terms of rejecting Western dominance regionally, to include the Sunni Islam, who, as we know, we're told in the West, it's somehow some kind of confrontational element within the two. In your experience, was this intentional or merely coincidence? Um, actually, with the, the issue of Palestine, that should have helped export a revolution. After all, Iran from very consistently has been champion of the Palestinian cause. So you would expect this to resonate outside. Uh, and there was a time when uh, the most expensive dates in Cairo were Ahmadinejad dates <laughs> well, because he was championing this issue. But that actually then compounds the problem, you know, why doesn't the revolution extend as appeal, even though if they're trapped? Again, I think it's because overall, the, so much of the, the revolution culture is she, it really does not resonate elsewhere. If, it, if there is any links, it's because of organizational links. There were some organizational links between the revolution and uh, Arafat. Doubt broke down because Arafat then supported Saddam, Saddam Hussein. There was some links with Hamas, but I think it's often exaggerated, in the, especially in America, for political reasons. Um, so there, that, I mean, going back to Khomeini in the 1960s, he always championed the Palestinian cause. And it didn't seem to carry much traction in when it, after the revolution in, in appeal. Yeah. 
Um, now, in terms of the revolution was very much anti-West, okay? You could say that discourse would appear universalistic because it's appealing to a broad uh, anti-imperial uh, powers. But even there, uh, he, Khomeini was very reluctant to pick up uh, universalistic discourse or you would have found in other revolutions. Uh, for instance, I don't think Khomeini ever used the word American imperialism. So if you were trying to appeal to third world appeals, that would have been an obvious way of doing it. He talked about American arrogance, which is a different thing. If you're arrogant, your behavior can change. You can be put down a peg or two. But if you're imperial, using the word imperialism, that means there's a structural economic, basically, uh, system there that is not going to change because of behavior. It's going to be more um, based on um, deep-seated structure. Um, so there, there was a lot of, you can say, uh, rhetoric about support of uh, anti-major anti, uh, powers. But when it come to the real reality, of, it was after revolution, it was much more pragmatic on uh, state, basically, interests. Um, to give you one example, uh, soon after, at the same time, a war broke out between the new republics of Azerbaijan and Armenia on the borders of Iran. So here you would say if Islam and Shiism was crucial, Iran would support Azerbaijan. They supported really Armenia, a Christian country. So what could be more pragmatic and realistic than that? And the realism was because Armenia didn't have territorial uh, claims on uh, Iran but Azerbaijan did have claims on uh, Iran. It claimed basically uh, Iranian Azerbaijan to be part of Azerbaijan itself. So, so in terms of real, real politic, it made sense for the Iranian regime to uh, uh, support uh, a Christian state against uh, uh, a fellow Sunni, a fellow Shi Islamic state. Question. gentleman here, familiar face. Thank you. Iraj Bagherzadeh, I'm a publisher. I will ask my question in a moment, but I just want to make an observation about your um, analysis of the pre-revolution situation uh, within Iran which um, I think uh, a lot of people who, would be, who were there at that time would agree that the level of discontent, actual discontent with the regime at that juncture was enormously high following um, the economic mismanagement 
of the country that created shortages of electricity and, short and, and massive traffic jams, and et cetera, et cetera. The mood in the street was a highly, highly electric mood that was anti-Shah by then. Um, on to my question. Um, do you think that in, uh, in the analysis that you've made, uh, did the revolutionaries, for better or for worse, miss a trick in terms of the extension of the revolution uh, within the region? Uh, because uh, one remembers the enormous charisma that radiated from Khomeini at that time, again, for better or for worse, um, and the extent to which he had massive following, it seems, in different parts of the Middle East. Uh, people who came back from Saudi Arabia and from Egypt on several occasions uh, described how within Jeddah and in Mecca, when they had, where they had gone for, uh, for, for the Umrah pilgrimage, pictures of Khomeini could be seen in shops and in the bazaars, etc., etc., um, which they found extraordinary. Uh, two or three events occurred um, shortly after the revolution, one of which was already alluded to, namely the Iran-Iraq war, uh, which obviously helped to distract attention from the so-called advantages of uh, what Iran had to offer at that time. And the other one, of course, was the hostage crisis, uh, which was a, a huge distraction. Elijah, I'm sorry, can I ask you to come to your question? My question is, my question is, was a trick missed as a result of these uh, uh, the, these uh, opportunities not pursued by Iran, namely uh, uh, building on the, on, on the charisma of Khomeini and mishandling post-revolutionary situations. Thank you. Charisma, the whole concept of charisma is actually interesting because uh, I don't think it's something that comes from <clears throat> the person itself, it's more due to a situation. If you look back at Max Weber's use of charisma, it's when uh, the sources of legitimacy have failed, that, that traditional legitimacy based on custom uh, or uh, what was in the past, that is broken down and there is no yet bureaucratic, he would call rational decision uh, order. And when there's a vacuum like that, then someone appears that claims that, well, uh, this was done in the past, but I tell you different. And what I tell you is more important because the old uh, legitimacy has collapsed. and There is no new one there. So I basically uh, have uh, what he said, uh, where I, uh, the charismatic leader claims basically authority from above, so legitimacy is coming elsewhere. And that happens only when the system itself is broken down. So someone using Khomeini as a poster, uh, 
that might be a sort of a sign of a political protest, but you have to have those systems breaking down, the local country's system breaking down for a real charismatic person to appear. And at that time, basically none of uh, the state, uh, Arab states uh, were experiencing a revolution that there was, you can say there, the charisma leader could appear or they could then use Khomeini as the person, as their leader. Uh, also, uh, at, at, soon after the revolution, there was of course that overtaking of Mecca, the people who took over the Kaab. They never really had any uh, use of Khomeini. It was that they considered basically a very much of a, their discourse was very much uh, Salafist discourse, not anything to do with Iran. Um, the, so I, I think even if Iran had been eager to export, there, it, there was really uh, no, pos no arena vacuums where this could have worked uh, uh, to do it. So it wasn't missing a point. It was the realist reality was not in their favor. Uh, uh, the problem of the, yeah, there was a lot of discontent in Iran before the revolution, but I don't think it was just question of uh, frustration on the economy. After all, there wasn't mass unemployment, there wasn't a mass depression, there wasn't even a recession. It was sli a slight cooling of the, of the uh, construction programs, and most regimes would have survived that. Uh, it, basically, you had a, a shortfall from, I think, tw 20 billion oil income to 18 billion. And Iran still had a lot of reserves abroad. It could have borrowed money. So it wasn't that type of economic discontent that uh, basically fueled the revolution. Uh, as I said, I think any re normal regime could have survived that. It was when the regime didn't have the legitimacy. It ba basically then was very much uh, faced by this uh, uh, unraveling. And you find that uh, in the American documents, uh, embassy documents, they, are, they at times mention that the regime is fragile and, it, and the opposition doesn't give it legitimacy. It doesn't accept its legitimacy. It's only later, much later, that you find one important uh, State Department official actually willing to admit this lack of legitimacy goes back to 53. There's a taboo in the American documents that whenever you talk about problems in the regime, you don't talk about 53 because after all, you'd have to talk about uh, the, the coup and the U.S. involvement in the coup. So there is an Orwellian, basically, erasing of the memory of 53 in the documents and I would say in the consciousness of American uh, policymakers. So that's why it's a surprise when it comes. They 
that they are often uh, unaware of 53. Uh, when I was writing a book on, on the 53 coup, I got an email out of the blue from a former uh, of, uh, embassy official. He said he had been given an intensive course in Iranian history, had gone through intensive language course before going to Iran, uh, and it wasn't until years later in Iran, in 1960, that someone, a student, told him about the 53 coup. He couldn't believe it. Uh, <laughs> he said that was not possible. And then he said later on when he was at the Iran desk in Washington, other uh, junior officials would write and say, is there truth in this? And he, would, he couldn't say, yes, there was a coup because that would be violating their secrets code. He would say, well, uh, you, you should look at this book or that book to find out what happened. So I think what, uh, the importance of 53 disappears because of that. Yes, the lady there up in the balcony. Um, hi, my name is uh, Fatima Buzajamehri, and I'm a student here at the LSE. Um, I'm also from New York, so it's good to see you here. Um, so you mentioned that the grounds on which revolutionaries built legitimacy or the rallying call was Shiism. So my question is, um, as national sentiments towards Shiism change, or if levels of religiosity decline, um, how does or should the government um, react to this change, and do you think that um, does it need to in order to survive or stay in power? I'll give the last question to this gentleman here who's been waiting so patiently with the hat. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. Um, before the revolution, there was definitely a country. A, a growing democracy where rights, workers' rights, women's rights were being enshrined, I'd like to say. And also, yes, not perfect, but definitely on a trajectory of uh, improvement. Then we had uh, nationalization there of oil. And then America, which I'm going to call the Christian fundamentalists. And the Muslim fundamentalists working together to destroy not only this democracy, but the wealth to rebring into their uh, religious ideologies rather than democracy. Can I just ask you to come to your question because we're almost done. Thank you very much. And the question is, how can you, do you think that the legitimacy, they have legitimacy to be able to commit such horrors without any uh, regress or imprisonment these religious fanatics. Thank you. Uh, well, can religions be tolerant of other religions? Uh, yes, if they accept the enlightenment. <laughs> That's basically what I think where you change the change of discourse. Uh, some religions that have accepted the framework of the Enlightenment and work within Enlightenment, then it's possible, like in you know, modern Anglican or Presbyterian or Protestant, uh, 
context to have democracy. But if you don't accept the premises of the Enlightenment, then there is the problem. Uh, you are, by definition, not accepting equality. You might accept other people's rights, which is different, but you're not accepting them as equal. So what you, uh, again, I think Foucault has a point here. If you move to a different uh, discourse, the whole arguments change. And the whole, I think the importance of the Enlightenment discourse is that it takes people as having equal rights. Uh, and it's a question of religion is nothing to do with rights. Uh, and I, I think actually in America you have the evangelicals, uh, or you would call the fundamentalists, uh, they, although I don't think they really accept equality, but they have to work within a framework that is still, still based on the Enlightenment. Uh, so they might resent it. They might not consider non-evangelicals as equal to them, uh, but they are not in a position to enforce it into the Constitution or into law. Uh, when you don't have that premise, then it's, uh, you get basically a, have a, a religious state which prefers uh, one religious group to another group, which is obviously then not democratic. Now, in the Iranian context, I think this is why it's important in the discourse, where you find in the past people who are very radical talking about a spread of revolution and stuff, they're not willing to accept the notion of, uh, of equal rights. Uh, and that is, I think, the litmus test. So however reformist you get, it's always careful to see, do they actually accept the Enlightenment premises? And it's very hard for an Islamic theologian to accept that. They could very much talk about, yes, everyone has, uh, has rights. Uh, we respect uh, uh, other people. But do you, can you have a constitution law that says everyone is equal despite their, uh, uh, their religious and also, of course, gender and so on? Um, and you find, I think, the closest theologian who's come to that is probably a president of Hatemi. Uh, but that's, again, verging on it. Someone like Montazeri, uh, if you read his writings carefully, he is always talking about, yes, minorities should be protected and so on. But he never comes to the question of that everyone is equal. Uh, and even in the Constitution, that inequality is there. And here again, the, the, the Sunni issue becomes actually quite is sensitive. Uh, Sunnis are not considered equal to Shias inside the Constitution. So if it's a universalistic revolution for everyone, then you would expect at home uh, even Sunnis would be considered equal to Shias. So to end that on that, <laughs> depressing note. <laughs> wow. So 
you know, I teach a course here on the Iranian Revolution, <laughs> so you've condensed 20 weeks of what we do into <laughs> an hour and a half. But um, what I wish we had had a little bit more time to talk about and which is relevant to what, what you raised um, is the issue of gender. Because what I always ask my, if you want to sort of look at this issue of the enlightenment narrative and the counter-enlightenment mm. narrative, I invite you to go on YouTube when you go home and Google the uh, International Women's Day protests in Tehran on the 6th of March, 1979, right? very soon after the victory of the revolution. And this, I think, was the first moment when that counter-enlightenment narrative of the Iranian revolution became very apparent, when this victorious revolutionary movement abandoned the women's rights movement in Iran in the name of revolution, with some exceptions. But um, it's, it's an issue that's alive and that we're still debating um, and we're still talking about. But as, as Joan Lai said about the French Revolution, it's too early to tell. <laughs> um, so in any case, thank you so much, Ervan. Uh, we're absolutely honored and pleasure.